Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The Supreme Court agrees with climate change. What does the Ontario budget mean to us? And how the heck do you free a ship that is stuck in the Suez Canal? Hashtag double parked. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Being the environmentally friendly kid my parents raised, I found a great use for my old mask. I demask, then head to the backyard to stoop the scoop, saving the planet one doggy dump at a time. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. What's he doing these things in the backyard now? He's doing the intros on location. Uh, I don't think you need to hear that. How's your lunch? Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900. Is anybody uh, pre-reading any of this, listening to it ahead of time? Is it being cleared with the lawyers, uh, ethics, HR, all that sort of thing? Uh, 12-11, 900-CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, <laughs> keeping the Scott Thompson home show uh, between the pipes. Oh, look, another delivery. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, Facebook and Twitter as well. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there on the same old, same old. Uh, feel free to jump in and, uh, and, and offer your opinion. We love it because, you know, sometimes we wonder if we're going too far one way or too far the other way. So always, uh, always interested in your opinion. All right. Uh, Tim Powers joining us, chairman, Summa Strategies, managing director, Abacus Data. And we're going to talk about uh, Supreme Court of Canada upholding the constitutionality of the federal carbon tax, all that sort of stuff. It all still applies. Tim, how are you? I am good on this glorious sunny day, Scott, here in Ottawa. I'm I'm all right. You? I'm doing fine. Can't complain. You know, we're uh, upright, retaining fluids, and that's all you can ask for during a global pandemic. <laughs> you got it. High bar. High bar. So uh, should we just uh, give the next election to Justin Trudeau since the conservatives <laughs> can do nothing but shoot themselves in the foot, even more so than the Donald himself? Uh, well, strange things happen in elections, but if today were the day you were going to the polls, you wouldn't figure uh, the conservatives and Aaron O'Toole would do well. I mean, this started last uh, weekend with the... Uh, the convention. I thought O'Toole gave a decent speech and said the right things, but then his members had a different view on whether climate change was real. And then came the Supreme Court today, telling three of Canada's conservative premiers and uh, others in the national conservative movement that guess what? No surprise, uh, the carbon price, carbon tax is real and uh, and and legal. More importantly, uh, for uh, for the federal government to impose. Uh, I just have three words, stupid, stupid, and stupid. Uh, this party's done, isn't it? Uh, certainly on this issue, and if the Prime Minister continues to make it the number one issue, they're done. <laughs> well, I don't know if they're done as much as they're going to fragment into regional entities, right? Um, there's still an audience in parts of Western Canada for a vitriolic uh opposition to the carbon tax, even though uh, you now have Jason Kenney and Scott Moe. I've heard them both this morning, the Alberta Premier and Saskatchewan Premier, saying, yeah, uh, we still we, we don't like this, but we're going to work. I'm paraphrasing. Well, we'll work to make sure that, the, you know, our citizens don't have this uh, piled up on their back, that it's not going to be more onerous than it has to, which is effectively in a form of an admission now that they need to go forward. Even Aaron O'Toole in his statement said, we'll repeal the carbon tax. But we'll come. Um, we'll repeal the carbon tax, whatever that may actually mean. Uh, but we'll have our own comprehensive um, ec- climate change plan. I just say the challenge Mr. O'Toole is going to have is: all right, how do you repeal the carbon tax and have a plan that people believe in, which is where you are driving your car this morning? Uh, as I've said many times, and probably to you, uh, when are we going to see something other than your granddad's uh, conservative party here? Uh, how can he possibly back his way out of this one? Because he's got to come up with something. What can he come up with 
that they yeah, just won't stand. It doesn't matter what it doesn't so. matter what he says. They're going to stand up and say, "Look what the Supreme Court yet said, whether it applies to the discussion or not." Yeah. So he look some suggestions as to what the conservative plan involved make uh, emitters, uh, industrial emitters, pay more. Um, that there are. Uh, subsidies and tech investments and the like for uh, for for different sectors and groups uh, of voters in the economy. Um, you know, Sheer tried all of this too, um, but that gets to be more convoluted, particularly if you have a conservative government saying, "Hey, subsidies are all right. You know, we can put them in there. We can invest that way." So O'Toole probably what really has happened for O'Toole today. I don't think, again, he is surprised by the decision. I don't think anybody's really surprised by the decision, uh, is that um, he's probably going to have to come forward sooner rather than later to put something in the window on what his real credible climate policy is and start defending it uh, before he gets uh, totally uh, sideswiped, as you have suggested, by uh, the policy convention and this court case. So, uh, you know, this is obviously a provincial deal, but as you said, falls right on the heels of of the uh, of the conservatives tripping over themselves. Uh, but, you you know, and this was a jurisdiction, a jurisdictional, a jurisdictional issue. So, um, See, as you mentioned, many. New, I know I just, you know, <laughs> Mr. Blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> you, many knew that this was going to fail, including the provinces. So why go through the exercise? To make a point that they were going to fight it to the bitter end, don't forget, Scott Moe, Jason Kenney, um, Doug Ford, all got political power using populist means. And the great anthema to populism in the provinces that they, uh, they all won in was seen to be, you know, this unfair taxation. This has been a great political tool for conservatives for years, right? Scott, you got to go back all the way to, you know, Stefan Dion is dog Kyoto, and Stephen Harper <laughs> beat the uh, G. Willikers out of Stefan Dion in the 2008 election, did the same thing in 2011. Um, and the conservatives across the country and all of the parties that I mentioned have made millions and millions of dollars opposing all of this. So they had, you know, from their political perspective, they, they, they almost needed this today. They now have been given an opportunity to say, all right, we fought the good fight. We went to the Supreme Court. We've mm. got to every court level. Uh, we just now have to make this work in a way that doesn't penalize you. Does O'Toole take advantage of that opportunity? Can he take advantage of that opportunity? We'll see. You know, you bring up a very valid point, which is why you're the strategist. I try, Scott. Um, I try for you. You know, uh, maybe the, <laughs> can he now go to his party and say, shut the heck up. See, can we move on now? Any more discussion here within the party with the extremes? Can he use that to his advantage? He might be able to. I mean, the, the Gold Mail quickly got out an editorial today that uh, not, not that that is the uh, paper of choice these days for the uh, the resistors to climate change in the in the uh, in the O'Toole's uh, uh, conservative party, but they made the point: co-opt this now, turn this into your own. Find a way if you want to change the way the tax works. All right, find a way to do that. Find a way to make it more um, beneficial. Don't get into these big virtue signaling exercises and national reconstructions that the liberals are in. Use this to your advantage. Does O'Toole have the dexterity? Is there the will to do that? Hey, it's not bad advice from the Globe and Mail. So what are the extremists in the party thinking today? Oh, Other than, I you know, they're all liberals right and they're all wrong. Judges, the exactly. Pardon? Exactly. But where does that get you? Other than saying that, you know, they're all liberals and they're all leaning to the left anyway. So but that doesn't solve your problem, does it? It doesn't solve the problem. And there's nowhere to appeal this anymore. Right. You went to the highest yeah. court in the land. Um, you know, O'Toole will try and say, if you want a policy that the, 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 the O'Toole will try and frame this up. I'm your last hope. Right. Uh, you mightn't like the fact that I acknowledge climate change is real. But if the Trudeau carbon tax, as we have defined it to you, is so offensive, then you need to vote for me because I'm going to tear that up. You don't know what I'm going to give you, but it won't be that. So he may drive in that direction as well. Will this election be about climate change versus vaccine performance? Uh, that's a good question. It depends when it is. I, I mean, I think 
you know, vaccine, the, the Trudeau government is going to try and say they've done a very good job on vaccine. So, yes, that will be part and parcel of, of the exercise, despite the hiccups and all the evidence that suggests we are laggards in the world when it comes to getting vaccinated. Uh, but I think climate change is is moving more aggressively up the agenda of ballot questions uh, because it is one where the liberals feel they have a distinct advantage on Aaron O'Toole, particularly with young voters in urban settings, which matter to them and matter to the conservatives if they want to win. So, yeah, with each passing day, um, Trudeau may move that right up to the top. Um, in, in on the vaccine front, uh, we have moved out of the 50s. We're in now to, I believe, 46 today. Um, and we have moved ahead of the European Union in the last couple of days. Uh, as a result of that, the European Union uh, upset because they're watching their vaccine go out the door and go to vaccinate uh, other jurisdictions. Canada, the second biggest purchaser of vaccine from the UK, they say they're going to cut the supply for six weeks, but this won't affect Canada, uh, uh, the government says. How can you be the second biggest producer and it not affect? How will this change the discussion? Yeah, are they just going to carve out the, the Canadian shipments? I, I mean, the war is really with Britain, and it's a big dust-up, as you know, over Brexit, and it's a bit of payback because yep. the Brits are ahead of all of that. But how are we not collateral damage in that, right? Um, we, we can't, as we can in the U.S., just drive across the border and pick up the shipment. Uh, they have to come by sea or by air. Uh, it's going to require some incredible uh, logistical management effort to have a selective trade war. Uh, so, yeah, there should be concern about this. Uh, again, do you think the, U- the EU will sit quietly by while others, the, you know, I mean, at one time, the, you know, much of the European Union was well below where Canada was at 54th or so uh, last week. As I mentioned, that has changed. Uh, that has to be a factor that has to be a massive discussion there as you know they're they're basically letting it go to the highest bidder no yeah that's that seems uh, and on that note with canada being the second uh, largest purchaser of this stuff we don't even know what we're paying for this or how much more we're paying for this than other countries no, we don't know all the details on that i believe some general costing was released a lot like in months and months ago uh, as to what it might cost but it's an open you know the contract is fairly open ended uh, with uh, built-in uh, metrics for price fluctuation so it's just you're asking the right questions and they don't come with clear answers not even from me today scott no, I, can't I hear you those clear clear answers today so uh i, I don't mean to blindside you here any thoughts on the sure Ontario? You, do. you like doing that well, well, well what do you got for me? <laughs> Uh, your thoughts on the Ontario budget that came down uh, yesterday? I've been on, I've been on the planet for uh, I'm in my fifties. I think this is the most liberal conservative budget I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, from the highlights that I've seen of it, I, I agree with you too. Not very. I, I, I don't hear um, mass rebellion in the streets because the dastardly conservatives are cutting X, Y, and Z. It seems to follow the pattern of what's happening federally, that, uh, you know, deficits are down the road. We'll deal with them then. We need to invest in health care. And that's all probably true. Um, but it, it, it kind of goes against the brand. I mean, again, the, the Ontario Tories were very much against taxation and unnecessary spending. Maybe all this spending is necessary, uh, but it, 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 it's a mixed message brand. Is it against the brand or has Doug Ford just found the sweet spot we call the center, which has been greatly underrepresented in the last several years? Well, I think more Canadians are comfortable in the center, right? Uh, tell me a Canadian right But yet you now, wouldn't uh, think that from our politics. I mean, it's, it's pretty left, pretty right. Even the conservatives have been pretty right. Uh, and, and there's the gap in the center. So he, Doug Ford's the first conservative I've seen that's pulled anywhere close to the center uh, in this country. Is that accurate? Uh, you know, O'Toole was kind of getting there. I mean, even, even Harper. Not fast enough. Not fast enough, clearly, but look, he's he's also talking about areas where spending is needed, right? Like healthcare. Um, yeah. So he's 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 in a safe space. I think he's probably seeing some data that um, he generally did himself 
more good than harm during the pandemic, despite some periods of ups and downs. And uh, he's trying to get those so-called blue liberals to say, hey, you know what? He did an okay job. I like what they're talking about now. They aren't going to use NDP language now, or my use of it, you know, draconian cuts and the like, they're, 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 they're okay. So it's a play to some of those blue liberals, I suspect, and, and others who aren't ready yet for austerity. But I got to say, Scott, I, I don't know how the federal government and how the province can continue spending at this level and accumulating yeah. the deficits they are for the next couple of years. Sometime in the next two or three years, we're going to have to see some tough budgets. I was watching the finance minister, the Ontario finance minister, uh, the newer one, uh, deliver his uh, deliver the budget yesterday, and he actually used the lines, uh, "No one will be left behind. No one gets left behind." I believe now that's every single political party that has used that line. That's when I fell off my chair. I thought, oh, my goodness. Talk about stealing lines from the opposition's playbook. Uh, the liberals did it first. It's an NDP line. No one gets left behind. Uh, then the liberals took it, and now the conservatives are using it. I think we're seeing the center. And I'm wondering if you think the Federals are going to see that. Because remember, during Andrew Scheer's nightmare of a campaign, they didn't want anything to do with the Doug Ford Conservatives. Do you think it will be different this time? He seems oh, yeah, to have probably. found that sweet spot. Well, look at the word Scheer used, right? And I think Scheer, sorry, Scheer, gosh, you made me have a Freudian slip there, Scott. O'Toole used secure, secure, secure. He outlined a Harper version of five priorities. Why is he using the word secure? And it gets to the point you're making about Peter Beth and Falvey. Secure is about connecting to people who feel vulnerable right now. Why do people feel vulnerable? Because of COVID. What do they worry about? Getting left behind. So um, they're all using synonyms for the same thing, which is the anxiety that's out there in the public, legitimately so, because uh, the world's kind of restructured itself fairly quickly because of COVID. Lots of people have lost their jobs, and people want to know, regardless of the color of the jersey the government is wearing, that they're blue. Or, sorry, that, that, that the color is blue, that they're with them, uh, yeah. um, and will perform better than the Toronto Maple Leafs. We had to get that in there, too. So do you think that you will see uh, the federal conservatives lean more on Doug Ford as opposed to him being a pariah the last time? Oh, I most certainly so. Jason Kenney may now be the pariah this time, depending what he does on on climate policy, right? Jason Kenney was the golden child last time uh, because of his long historical roots in the Conservative Party. Don't forget Jason Kenney also helped Aaron O'Toole win, at least by endorsing him early on. So... Yeah, uh, strange thing about uh, politics. You may be kissing one cousin one day and punching the other in the face, and then you just <laughs> whip that order all around. So there you go. Now, i got to give you this update before you boot me off, because I know yes. we're up on time. The Newfoundland election results, Scott, coming on Saturday, finally after 10 weeks, the longest provincial election almost ever. Saturday they're going to be announced. Uh, so we'll see what happens there, because I know your listeners care about that. you got a lot what's of the What's the buzz out there? What's the buzz out there right now? Well, despite the COVID uh, interruption, the sense is the Liberals will still win. Um, whether they are able to get their coveted majority uh, that they had set out to get, something Trudeau will try and do, uh, is not certain. But seems to be people are thinking the Liberals will get it, but not with the larger numbers they got before. But nobody can tell you accurately because of the whole mail-in ballot system, the difficulty of tracking votes, uh, not knowing what will be accepted or, or disqualified by the very colorful chief electoral officer of my home province. <laughs> Spoken with true passion, Tim. Uh, Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Man, I, uh, you know, in my time on the planet, I have never seen a more centrist conservative party than the one that we have now. And the last budget has just proved that. And people are only actually asking the conservatives uh, questions like, how are you going to balance your budget? You've spent so much. Uh, boy, oh boy, <laughs> what a change. 
and uh, perhaps uh, the provincial conservatives and, and maybe the federal will be listening in that uh, the victory is in the center and uh, not on the fringes, that's for sure. Uh, and Ontario's budget is to spend uh, billions on emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. To talk more about all of this, Stan Chow is with us, MPP for Willowdale and Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Finance and is with us now. Stan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thanks. So I, just to start off, I want to start off by being uh, the devil's advocate here and and, and talk about what the critics uh, have said, because it, surprisingly, uh, and I'm just saying that for a conservative budget, uh, a lot of people are normally jumping on conservatives at this time, but uh, y- you've seemed to be getting the thumbs up here. But critics have said that the budget failed to make the urgent investments needed to get through the pandemic, including a lack of funding for paid sick days, uh, paid time off to get vaccinated or plans to hire more. Uh, education workers. Uh, Andrea Horvath, leader of the NDP, said this budget doesn't even mention a third wave, let alone people, uh, sorry, helping people uh, through it. So your thoughts on what the opposition, what the critics are saying about what happened? Yeah, thanks, Scott. I mean, one year ago, we started this fight against COVID-19, and and the budget on Wednesday was our third phase and the $51 billion action plan in response to this pandemic. And you know, we, we can see the end at, at the sort of the light of the tunnel, but uh, we have to stay focused on protecting and supporting the health and safety of Ontarians, as well as protecting our, our jobs and economy. And, and that's exactly what this budget showed yesterday, with $16.3 billion invested into health care, a billion dollars of that going to get vaccines into the arms of every Ontarian, uh, $5.1 billion for hospital capacity and to address the surgical backlog. Uh, there's uh, $4.9 billion to help us get to our nation-leading commitment to provide an uh, an average of four hours of daily care for every long-term care resident. Uh, We've uh, come out with a third version of the child benefit, which will provide $400 for every child uh, directly into the hands of parents, $500 uh, for children with special needs, and, and we've doubled the Small Business Support Grant program to provide uh, businesses up and down Main Street with up to $20,000 in direct relief. We cannot have a healthy economy without healthy people. We are not through this pandemic yet, and this budget is going to finish the fight we started a year ago. I think this is the first time I can remember, Stan, where after a conservative budget has been released that people are asking, how are you going to pay for this? Uh, you know, it's usually the liberals were saying this too. Um, we're, we're certainly seeing a different Doug Ford uh, during the pandemic than we did at the beginning of the pandemic. And he seemed to have really come to the center, which I think is great because to me, both parties have gone too far in either direction and forgotten about uh, those that are in the center, which I believe is the majority of Ontarians and Canadians. Is, is this party moving towards the center? Well, Scott, I think we've been very consistent from the beginning saying that there is no expense you can put on the health and safety of the people we serve. You know, hard stop. And and I think the Premier's been very consistent with that message throughout this pandemic. Uh, We'll recall a year ago when this thing began, uh, we allocated $17 as our plan in response. Then in the summer, that was increased to $30 And then in our last budget in November, that was $45 And then yesterday, we announced it's $51 because, you know, these are still uncertain times. And we still have to adapt with those uncertain times. But I want to remind everybody, in our first two and a half years in government, you know, we slashed the proposed liberal deficit in half. Uh, and, and the reason we did that was to save for a rainy day, and precisely for these types of reasons. Because COVID-19 is a big storm, and you're prudent when times are good, so that you can react and spend when times are bad. There is absolutely no reason not to spend today to protect the health and safety and the economy of the people we serve. Um, uh, I, I found it fascinating when the Minister of Finance used the term, no one gets left behind, which is obviously an NDP term, and then the Liberals picked up on it, and now the Conservatives have picked on it, uh, or picked up on it, rather. Uh, can, you, can you expand any more on that line, Stan? I sure can, Scott. I really appreciate that question. And because the difference with us is that we mean it. I mean, nobody is left behind, and we're very transparent about that. I mean, this is the fourth document, essentially, we've written in a calendar year. No other government has been this transparent, uh, you know, in Canada. And the numbers need to be attached to those broad statements, and it certainly is in, in our budget's case. We've got the numbers of $186 billion being spent to protect the people we serve. It, it's not enough just to say uh, nobody gets left behind. You need to actually put 
the dollars behind that. And so that's why we've provided this uh, historic $16.3 billion into our healthcare system. Uh, we have a growing population, an aging population, and our healthcare system was under stress before COVID-19. So this is an opportunity to continue to invest into the healthcare system. We know we're going to need it more uh, moving forward. And we're going to make sure that we do this in a fiscally responsible way by laying the foundation for that economic growth in the future so that our job creators can power that path back to fiscal prudence. Uh, Long-term care obviously devastated during this uh, pandemic. Um, and as many know, and, and, and if they certainly uh, didn't uh, before, they do now, of the, the, the weak links in the chain of, of long-term care, it's exposed something that's been neglected for many, many, many years. Uh, the Premier talked about the Iron Ring and, and making sure that, that those people stay protected. What sort of changes are we going to see there? And, and again, it seems that this is something that doesn't change overnight. It doesn't, and, and that's bang on, Scott. I mean, uh, you know, and I don't want to play politics here, but the last government, the fact is, uh, had uh, decades to, to fix a broken system. We knew we had an aging population, but unfortunately, in the decade before our government, there was only 600 beds built in the entire province for long-term care. Uh, and we, we, we said from the beginning, but even before the pandemic, that had to change, knowing that we have an aging population, that the pressures on the system were going to grow. Uh, and you're right, it does take approximately three years to get beds actually built. But we've really had to ramp that up, and we've shown that we're committed to that. We've thrown, uh, put, uh, invested another uh, $933 million into long-term care. That's $2.8 billion to build 30,000 new long-term care beds. 20,000 of those are already on the way. We've also invested $246 million to improve living conditions for the existing homes uh, and an additional $650 million a year to protect long-term care homes. And, and when it comes to vaccinations, and, you know, yes, we have some supply challenges, you know, the good news is that we've been able to vaccinate 100% of long-term care residents with their first dose and 90% with their second dose. And this is just in addition to that bigger uh, nation-leading standard of care uh, that I mentioned earlier for four hours of daily care to long-term care residents. And our budget announced $4.9 billion to help us get, get there. It's an ambitious goal, but with these resources, we know, we know we're going to hit our target of four years for that accomplishment. So, Stan, even uh, those that you wouldn't think are saying, how are we going to pay for this? How, where do you see the next couple of years? Where's the money coming from? Yes, Scott, it's an important question because uh, there are those that believe that you can only get that money by austerity measures and cutting programs and services. There are others who believe you can only get that money from raising taxes on individuals and, and small businesses. But, you know, I, I think we've made it clear that uh, we believe those are false choices, that there is a third path. And this budget shows that we are betting on the people of this province. And we know that before the pandemic, Ontario was leading the country, North America, in terms of job creation and attracting new companies and creating those conditions for that success. And that's where we're going to continue. We're going to make sure that those job, that job growth, uh, of course, we all know that's revenue for the province, but we're also modernizing government, making our services more efficient, digitizing, uh, you know, centralizing our procurement, making sure that money is more efficiently used. Last week, we asked the facts. Can you believe government was still using fax machines? I mean, that's yes. archaic technology at this point. So we're, all, we're also doing things uh, in government to make things more streamlined, more efficient, and we are confident that we are going to have those days of prosperity again. All right, Stan, I uh, can't go through this without talking uh, about the pandemic, uh, getting a lot of calls, a lot of emails, a lot of texts about people fatigued. Uh, had one listener that, that actually said, you know, we were told if we stayed home this holiday that we'd be better for the next one. And, of course, we all know where we are uh, and says, as a result, they're inviting the whole family over for for Easter. Uh, what are your thoughts on restrictions and the big debate of how to keep us all safe as yeah. we head into a long weekend? Yeah, Scotty, you know, it, it's, uh, I feel it in my riding in Willowdale and, and uh, people are tired. I get that uh, COVID fatigue is absolutely a real thing. And, and you know, and, and the people of Ontario have really made sacrifices. It's been a very, very difficult year. But for the first time, we really do see uh, that, uh, that light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccination plan imminent. We have a billion dollars set aside for that plan. The, the, the supply is coming. And, and so we're so close we need to exercise that last bit of vigilance. We're sort of in that last hundred meters of the race, and, and, and we're so close. It would be a shame to go backwards at this point. So uh, 
you know, I've got COVID fatigue. Everyone's got COVID fatigue, but we really need to stay the course and cross the finish line uh, to make sure that uh, we put this thing to bed for good once and for all. Stan Cho has been with us, MPP for Willowdale and Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Finance, talking about the budget and everything relating around COVID. Stan, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Take care. As we mentioned, uh, Ontario budget released uh, yesterday, and um, not a lot of criticism as far as the amount of money spent, unless, of course, uh, you're perhaps a taxpayer or with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation like Jasmine Moulton is. And she is with us now. Jasmine, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. So I'm dying to hear what your thoughts are on this, because, I mean, you know, I'm a guy in my 50s, and I think this is the most liberal-sounding conservative budget I've ever seen. (laughs) That's a good way to describe it. Uh, There's a lot of spending. And I think that your listeners might say, well, we're in a pandemic, we're still trying to recover. But when you go through the nuts and bolts of this budget that came out yesterday, uh, there's a line item actually in the budget that's called the COVID-19 health response. And it's only $5.1 billion dollars. That's only 3% of the budget that was presented today. So I think that this government um, has a lot of uh, room to save money, frankly, um, in other areas. And we were calling for them to cut the wasteful spending. I mean, it's reasonable to spend on healthcare during a pandemic. But like I say, um, you know, the line item for COVID-19 health response is quite a small piece of a very, very large pie that we saw yesterday. So you said other areas. Explain. What do you mean? Well, um, total spending is $186 billion this, uh, this year. It was $190 billion last year. So we're spending about the same this year as we did in 2020, which was, you know, the main year that COVID-19 spending hit. That's substantially more, nearly $50 billion more than we were spending the year prior. Um, so we're seeing that COVID-19 temporary spending really has not been that temporary. It's setting a new normal um, that I think should scare everybody because let's just go back three years ago. This government got elected on um, saying that they were going to get Ontario's crazy spending under control. Your listeners might recall that Kathleen Wynne was adding about $40 million to the debt every single day. Well, even this year now, Doug Ford is adding $111 million to the debt every single day. So I think that that should scare everybody listening uh, to this program because debt today means taxes tomorrow. Uh, is, is it a haul or is it just that we're not out of the woods yet? And, and again, you know, as you, you've acknowledged that we're in a pandemic here, but, you know, um, wouldn't more be spent after just sim- simply as the, as the bills come in? Well, we're seeing other provinces lay out their budgets here now as well. And Nova Scotia, for example, just showed that they're going to return their budget to, ba- uh, to balance in four years. Ontario is not going to get its budget back to balance for another eight years. So until 2029. So you have to ask yourself, what is all of this spending going toward? Um, and why aren't they finding any savings? That was pretty much what they told us yesterday is that They're banking on economic growth to get us out of this. They're not going to raise taxes, which is smart. I don't think anyone can afford a tax hike right now, but they're also not cutting spending. And that's where we take issue is that there are a lot of areas, for example, uh, government employee compensation, which you and I have spoken about before, Mm -hmm. where they're handing out raises, um, government-wide raises, while the province is broke. So we were really disappointed not to see any sort of spending restraint from this government yesterday. So you wanted to see more austerity just across the board? Well, I mean, austerity kind of has a negative tune to it. We would just like to see some common sense. When uh, when a business is broke, they're not handing out big raises. Usually they're handing out pink slips. But this government's handing out raises across the board, uh, government-wide, that will be hundreds of millions of dollars, for example. Uh, and I, I should also point out, government compensation isn't only salary increases, which we just saw a massive spike in, I think, 40,000 government employees added to the Sunshine List this year. Um, But we also see their unfair pensions and benefits going up. So, for example, you know, education base funding went up, but so did the uh, taxpayers' contributions to teachers' pensions. We're giving $23 million more this year. Um, And I think that taxpayers are right to be scratching their heads saying, you know, a lot of us lost our jobs. Um, why, why aren't we all in this together?
And many have said that through the pandemic that um, that they have fared better than than most. But uh, you know, I guess that's just the way it is in government. So you look at this as a missed opportunity to trim government compensation. Well, not only uh, government compensation, that's the biggest area of spending. So that's the one that would make the most of an impact. But there are other opportunities as well. Uh, Corporate welfare is one that we've often criticized. You know, why are we handing uh, $500 million out to Ford Motor Company, the 12th company on the Fortune 500 list, when Ontario's debt is now approaching $440 billion? Um, So I think that everybody should be very worried about Um, this government banking on economic growth, because if we learned anything in 2020, it's that you don't know what's coming down the pipes. You don't know what the economy is going to do. You need to focus on what you can control. And the only thing that government can control is its spending. And frankly, this is a big spending government that Ontarians did not vote for back in 2018. So you're not buying into the when this is all over, it's the roaring 20s mentality. Uh, absolutely. I, I don't think anyone has a crystal ball that they can predict what's going to happen uh, with the economy. But um, as you started this uh, this interview with, you know, comparing liberals and conservatives, if we look at what uh, Cretchen did, the Fraser Institute just put out a report saying that Ontario must reduce its annual spending by 3% of GDP in order to get the budget balance. And there's federal precedent for this. Cretchen government uh, back in 1995 in its federal budget they reduced annual spending by 4.6% of GDP to eliminate the federal deficit in two years. So if a federal liberal prime minister, Jean Chrétien, um, can get his spending under control, then certainly an Ontario government, uh, Doug Ford, who ran on the promise of getting our books back in order, surely he can do the same. Jasmine Moulton's been with us. Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Ontario budget obviously down yesterday, spending billions and uh, some concerned about the cost of this at the end. Jasmine, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. All right. I'm sure you've seen the uh, the video already. And if you've got kids, you probably saw it before anyone else did, because uh, it's something that, you know, this is, is, you know, you see it on YouTube or TikTok. And think, this isn't real. When did this happen? Uh, and there is still no movement of a skyscraper sized cargo ship, which is wedged across Egypt's Suez Canal. And you can imagine how that is stopping the flow of goods going back and forth. Reporter Tom Rivers has the latest from ABC. Another long day for the tugs and dredgers, but still no progress. The MV Ever Given remains wedged in the waterway. That's creating a growing traffic jam at the entry points on either end, with at least 150 vessels now stacked up. The hope is the ship can be coaxed into moving without having to offload its thousands of containers, which would eat up even more time. Man, can you imagine if they had to unload all of the containers on that ship? My goodness. Uh, Let's bring in Vic Singh, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Vic, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So what are your thoughts when you saw this giant uh, craft, this giant, almost like a barge, that's uh, now obviously plugging the Suez Canal? Yeah, pretty interesting where we saw a huge uh, container disrupting one of the busiest uh, shipping routes in the world. Um, And, you know, I mean, it is a major thing because when you look at the number of ships which actually pass through this very vital link, uh, it it is a spectacular event which is taking place right now. And hopefully things will get resolved soon because uh, this could disrupt some of the trade, um, I would say, even in Canada in the coming days. So talk about that. Talk about the the, the Suez Canal, this, how vital this shipping route is. I think we heard uh, that was some, on the report something like 150 uh, ships are now stuck just in the short time that this thing has been wedged in. Talk about the significance of this canal. It, it is very significant in a sense when you look at the numbers, 150 boats, we see over $10 billion of goods, which goes back and forth through this canal, and it, it is a vital link between China and some of the European uh, p- uh, ports. So uh, absolutely, this can have a huge impact on uh, day-to-day products we get from China, and also it can have an impact on gas supply. Uh, who, will be, uh, who will be affected by this? 
I don't think we have to worry a lot from it. I mean, it all depends on how long it takes. I mean, if it takes a couple of days to clear off, then, you know, you'll be just like any other major weather event. Uh, but if, if this takes long, that could bound to have some, some effect. Because we have to remember, we live in a very globalized economy. We are dependent on global supplies. Uh, now said that, most of our goods, which, which, which come from Asia, come, comes through the Pacific route. Uh, but right. there is a smaller component which comes uh, through this route, and especially when you look at the ports in Montreal and, and Halifax. I mean, those are the areas we have to be concerned about. And uh, most of the goods which come through that route are mainly retail and consumer goods. How does this affect, and I guess it depends on duration, how long this lasts, but how will this affect, uh, affect the supply chain? Because we, as we've said, there's 150 ships just sitting there waiting. Do you keep sending ships down there? Do you halt, uh, halt them at their own home port in order uh, to wait until it does clear up? Because even if it was open right now, obviously it's going to take a while to get 150 ships through it. So how does that affect those going into the canal before they even left their home port? Well, right now, I think they're all scrambling to find alternative routes. And, you know, if you look at the alternative routes, it's a much longer route which goes around Africa. So, I mean, there has to be some hard choices which they have to make, you know, whether send the ships in and then have to wait it out or take a longer route. So I think it'll be interesting to see how long this this takes. I mean, if it takes longer than a few days, then I'm pretty sure that some of the shipping routes will get extended and that can have, a you know, an impact on our, our on our supplies going forward. Uh, we've heard that this is quite a big one, and we can see by the pictures in the sense that you could put a skyscraper on it. Uh, any idea the number of cargo containers that are on it? Because each one of those represents the back of a truck once it comes off that ship. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to count them, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've been told that this is one of the biggest uh, container ship in the world. So I'm, I'm assuming uh, it's going to have an awful lot of uh, stuff uh in those cargo containers. So I can't really give you a number, but but it is a pretty significant amount, which is stranded right now. And and more importantly, it's also the other ships which are backed up. Um, that's an area of concern too. So uh, who would pay for something like this in the end? How does, because how does, my goodness, the cost would be, it would go a lot of layers. Well, there is insurance, um, and I'm sure insurance will kick in. But at the same time, I don't think that's going to account for some of the time lost and, and the delay. So, I mean, in a sense that the insurance will probably pay for the disruption uh, to the vessel, but I'm not, I'm not sure if that would actually compensate uh, for this massive disruption we're facing um, in terms of the, the, you know, the, the route being blocked. So whose responsibility would it be to try to fix this, uh, get this thing loose? Well, I think it has to be the Port Authority, and I think uh, what I've seen and what I've read is that uh, the shipping company has has uh, contracted, uh, I believe that there's two um, uh, companies to uh, help out in dredging and, and using tugboats and whatever way they can. But, but at the same time, you have to remember, this is a skyscraper-sized uh, cargo ship, and there's not a lot of space to maneuver uh, through the canal, because the canal is actually pretty narrow. Uh, so if you can see in the pictures, it, it's tightly wedged in between. So I'll, depending on how bad it is, I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, definitely it will take uh, at least some time to get this thing going. Uh, yeah, $10 billion a day they're talking about. Uh, as you mentioned, the aerial photograph of this is, is amazing because it it's wedged in there. Um, will we, do you think we'll see any changes as a result of this? I understand what happened in, in, uh, is that uh, the ship lost power uh, during a storm and, and off it went. Uh, they were along for the ride at, at that point. Well, I think they have to take a hard look at this, and 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 maybe there should be some. You no, know, remember, this has to be a global effort. Where, you know, if you have a global uh, supply uh, route, you have to make sure that it's efficient and 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 can handle the amount of cargo. And as uh, you know, we rely more on global supply chain. We have to make sure that these supply routes are are clear, are free and clear, and have more efficiency to it. Or maybe. In the future, we might have to think about making it wider. I'm not sure, making it more efficient. But, uh, but I'm guessing that there will be some effort made uh, so that these kind of incidents don't repeat.
Um, what would what is the fallout of this? I mean, uh, I guess it does come down to uh, how long this is stuck. But let's say it's been a couple of days already. What if this lasts for a week? I don't know. We haven't seen something like this before, yeah. so I, I hope it doesn't last a week. And I'm, I'm sure they will be doing everything they can, which technology allows, uh, in being able to get this thing uh, out of the canal. Uh, if you are one of those ships that's waiting in line for this, is there any way to decide who gets to go first once it reopens? Is it a case of what your goods are on board, how important they are, or is it just where you are in the line? How are they going to figure this out? I I don't know how they would, and I'm assuming it would be probably be a priority based on where you are uh, in in the lineup. But but said that, you know, there are cargo ships perhaps which have. Uh, much more perishable items in them than the others. So I'm not sure how it works. Maybe they can negotiate this, but at the same time, you have to also remember that the, the canal is pretty narrow, so there's not a lot of room to maneuver. If, so in fact... If the fact, if in fact the 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 answer here is to, because again, I, I'm sure these ships are getting bigger and bigger every year. Uh, the canal's been there for what 150 years, I believe. Um, and who who would who would contribute to, uh, uh, I guess, uh, renovating the canal, redoing the canal? I think it has to be a global effort because um, I, I, I doubt if Egypt has the capacity alone to be able to, uh, you know, make this canal wider. So I, I think there will be some talks going forward. I hope there there are some talks in being able to make this uh, route much more efficient and cater to the needs of, of current time. Because if you remember, this canal was done years, decades and decades ago, and now the shipping routes have completely transformed with the new technology and bigger ships, and also a greater reliance on, on global goods. So the traffic has also increased dramatically. Uh, obviously been a shipping lane for 150 years, not certainly that uh, for 150 years. What about oil, energy going through there? How important is that? How will that affect uh, countries? It, it is a pretty important route when you look at the oil refineries and the trade and perhaps I think it will matter more to Europe than to us uh, just because you know we have other sources of oil supply so I think this will be a concern to Europe right now uh, depending on how, how long this uh, blockage lasts. The fact that this is happening during a global pandemic Vic does that change anything? It does make matters worse because, you know, at the same time, you know, we are kind of trying to deal with public health and, and trying to deal with this situation. So, so certainly it's been a, kind of like a double whammy, if you want to call it. Uh, it's occurred at, at, at a wrong time where we're already facing supply chain disruptions because of the pandemic, and now this makes matters even worse. I'm certainly not an expert on how to get a ship uh, unstuck from the Suez Canal, but they're talking about having to unload it and obviously put it to uh, a, another uh, vessel and move on. Uh, obviously, they're using that as a last resort. Uh, that's what I've, I've read and I've heard that that would be the last resort if they can get this thing moving. Um, certainly, if, if the tugboats and, and towing doesn't work, I mean, that would be the last resort, but that would probably take a few days for them to be able to do this because we have to remember it's a lot of containers and they'll also have to make way through those ships who, who are stranded. So there is around 150 ships which are stranded or are or, or waiting to go through. So I think it will be a logistical challenge. Wow. It is, uh, it's unbelievable to see. All right. Let's, uh, talk about, uh, just the supply chain in general. I remember uh, hearing a, a couple of weeks ago that there were a lot of issues around electronic chips and who was getting those. And there was seemed to be a supply shortage of those, uh, you know, pandemic related, uh, and that that would eventually hit car companies. We're hearing now Honda, uh, to extend production slowdown across North America. Uh, what can you tell us about this, and how is this pandemic related? Well, absolutely. I think the global chip shortages are uh, hurting a lot of companies. You've heard Samsung, you've heard Honda, you've heard uh, Volkswagen, uh, and, and you have to remember the semiconductor shortage, which is the one which is to be blamed, is causing this, and that's disrupting uh, and causing sh uh, chip shortages. And obviously, we've seen Honda recently. Uh, you know, announced that they will be putting a you know temporary hold on their uh, on on their production. 
so certainly this this is an ongoing issue going forward, and that's basically based on where these semiconductor chips are coming from. They're being produced globally, and they're and you know what the supply chain disruption is causing a lot of a lot of issues. So is this the shortage of semiconductors? Is this a supply chain issue due to the fallout or or the effects of of COVID nineteen? Is this just people not manufacturing them? Well, uh, partly yes, I think um, you have to remember because we are in this this in this pandemic and the way things are evolving, uh, you know, you have to source these uh, these parts from around the world, and 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 if there are disruptions, let's say there's a factory in Thailand which which goes through a a disruption, could be due to COVID nineteen or whatnot. That can have a global ramification, and that's what we're seeing right now. Is that uh, you know we're seeing these shortages, uh, and most of our chip makers are in Asia. We see Taiwan Semiconductor is one of the biggest one, and now they are trying to uh, scale up their production, but they're still facing is- issues. So obviously, we've heard of this hitting the auto industry. What other industries are uh, <laughs> probably everything? What other industries are affected? Well, chips are in everything yeah, right now, yeah. so it's, it's hard to say. But we're also seeing Samsung, which is a is a huge uh, player in this market, also announcing uh, cutbacks in production. So I'm assuming that this is going to uh, go through a lot of lot of the sectors where we rely on these on these chips. Will we see other uh, car companies, Ford's, General Motors, Chrysler's going through this? Uh, yeah, I think I think that they're all going through this right now because remember, cars have become much more sophisticated. Yeah, uh, you know, lately, and we use chips for in every every car we can think of. So I think uh, that's going to have an impact, and I think uh, GM and Ford and others are also struggling right now. So obviously, uh, how does that affect supply chains uh, in the sense that, you know, again, these companies are dealing with a global pandemic. Uh, there are, you know, there, there's chatter that there is lots of money on the sidelines because people can't do anything. Uh, we have heard that car sales have uh, have held on. But now when production's off, that's going to that's going to change a lot, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I think that's going to have an impact. And you have to also remember that, you know, when we look at these, some of these production facilities, these are massive production facilities. And if you have one shift stoppage, that can have a lot of impact uh, in terms of production, right? So, so definitely that's going to have an impact. I think also we've seen demand side uh, being, being soft because of COVID-19. And, you know, there is a sense that once the, vaccinations take place the the pent-up demand will will help some of these companies so uh so definitely i think it's an issue going forward if they can get the uh the supply back to where they should be getting back to the ship stuck in the suez canal would it have semiconductors on board could that slow this (laughs) down even more what is on that ship uh well everything uh i think i think there's a lot of things in there they haven't really said in detail what's in there but there is a lot of uh consumer goods in there so i you know i wouldn't be surprised that there are electronics products or, or parts and materials in those ships so uh, when do you think and no one knows because we're not certainly you know in the business of getting ships unstuck but uh, at what point will you see will you say to yourself wow i'm surprised it's not out by now well if it's not out in the next 48 hours i'll be i'll be quite worried Definitely. Really? Wow. Yeah. All right, Vic Singh with us, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, talking about uh, the uh, ship wedged, uh, wedged in the Suez Canal and how that could affect supply chains and uh, also semiconductor and chip uh, shortages affecting the auto industry. Vic, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. How would you feel if your home country, say Canada, was a world leader in COVID-19 vaccine research and development and was selling it instead of giving it to you? Of course, it's all hypothetical because we don't make COVID-19 vaccine in Canada. We missed out on that opportunity last year when Justin Trudeau's deal with China fell through, sending him on a desperate spending spree, a.k.a. the portfolio. But say we did make it. However, instead of concentrating on vaccinating our own citizens first to help subsidize the industry, we were selling it out the back door to the highest bidder. I bet you would even be more angry than you are now having to buy it because you can't make it. So why would any other country or the European Union let a purchaser of the vaccine out vaccinate them while they suffer? 
The European Union makes the life-saving vaccine, and yet it is watching the rest of the world ever so slowly get it before them because of sweet-talking politicians with a gold credit card. As Canada gets more vaccine, Europe falls farther and farther behind, in part because Canada is the second largest purchaser of COVID-19 vaccine from Europe. And let's not forget the COVAX vaccine we're getting meant for underprivileged countries. All of a sudden, Canada and its sunny ways aren't so sweet. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Epidemiologists with Hamilton Public Health say the third wave could be much worse than the second, partially because of the more contagious variants. 32% of recent COVID-19 cases in the city are screening positive as a variant. Epidemiologist Stephanie Hughes says Hamilton has already seen a total of 1,701 infections and 59 outbreaks since the third wave began a little over a month ago. We were in month three of the pre-peak period of wave two, so in November of 2020, when we reached these same case counts. Uh, If these trends continue, our case activity levels for wave three may surpass those reported for wave two. 93 new cases of COVID-19 have been reported on top of 226 new cases over the weekend, and the weekly case rate has climbed to 102 per 100,000 people. Lisa Pulaski, 900 ZHML News. Let's bring in Brian Lichty, uh, Dr. Brian Lichty, Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine with uh, McMaster University's Immunology Research Center and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, um, I'm doing good. I hope you are too. Yes, thanks so much. Your thoughts as to where Hamilton is now and in the thoughts of a third wave? Uh, well, unfortunately, the numbers clearly indicate we're in the third wave and um you know people are getting tired i think of the pandemic and so the worry is that and the weather's getting nicer and people are going to let their guard down and the variants that are starting to spread here in in canada uh do very well under those circumstances and so uh the numbers are increasing and they're going to continue to increase um this could very well be the worst of the three waves because we don't have enough people vaccinated and um, we're probably not being as careful as we used to be. What about the fact, doctor, that uh, obviously the most vulnerable, those 80 plus in long-term care, which was obviously extremely devastated during the first and second wave, have been vaccinated. How does that change the complexion of the third wave? Well, hopefully what it means is that we have managed to protect our healthcare workers our frontline workers, uh, and those elderly that are most at risk. So while we will have probably uh, increased case counts, the hope is that at least that doesn't translate into the same sort of mortality or or ideally burden on the healthcare system. But um, there's still a lot of people, you know, like, like us in our 50s, <laughs> who are away from getting our vaccine, who may not do so well if we get a variant particularly. So um, there's still reason to be careful. Uh, We just hope that uh, that vulnerable population will fare much better this time around. Uh, Your concerns over uh, coming up next weekend into the Easter holiday and such, and, and perhaps a message there. Well, like any other holiday weekend or uh, um, you know, celebration of any sort. Uh, it's kind of not the time to be getting together in large groups again, uh, unfortunately, because, you know, these variants are circulating in the population. And um, because they're so contagious, you know, one event could, you know, create far more cases than we've seen in the past, even. Uh, obviously, uh, as we mentioned, the the elderly are starting to get vaccinated. Those in long-term care have been covered, so on and so forth. What about the threat to young people here? We're hearing that the hospitalizations, the majority, are under 65 now. Yeah, and I guess it's a mixture of, uh, of we being more careful about protecting those older you know, populations and they now having some protection from the vaccine, depending 
where they are, like what, how many shots they've had and so forth. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a shift in, in the demographics in terms of who is most impacted. Um, as we manage to vaccinate and protect uh, different populations, it'll push the uh, most affected age categories down. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully, you know, they won't be um, as severely affected because um, the truth is that, you know, most people under 40 do much better than people, you know, 50 and up. So as we push through the spring and summer and more and more elderly or older middle-aged people become vaccinated, um, we may see, you know, we may see positive COVID tests, but hopefully it starts to lead to fewer uh, hospitalizations and deaths. So as far as hospitalizations at this point in ICU and such, are we under the same pressure that we were a few weeks ago, a few months ago? To be honest, I don't know the current local numbers, but I do know that there are some jurisdictions still in, in Ontario and other parts of Canada who are, are quite heavily burdened uh, because of where they are in the third wave and, and um, the number of people who have picked up these variants of concern. Uh, AstraZeneca, so, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, have you finished your thought? Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, AstraZeneca changed labeling uh, today to confirm update, perhaps is a better word than change, updated label uh, in agreeing with the U.S. research up to 76% efficacy, but most importantly, no uh, more issues, it appears, regarding illness or anything as a result of this vaccine. It appears all of that uh, has been cleared. Your thoughts on where AstraZeneca is now and those that might be skeptical of it? Um, I think that all of the data, you know, by now, and there's a lot of it, um, is telling us the reality here. So, um, you know, it was a small adjustment based on um, pulling out some older data that some people didn't want to have included, but it didn't really change the numbers, essentially. It was, it's still high 70s. Uh, and once again, confirmed that uh, there's no you know, health risks associated with the vaccine. Now that more and more people have been vaccinated and carefully monitored, um, there doesn't seem to be anything going on with that vaccine that we need to worry about. Um, It works and it's safe. Uh, As we uh, hear more and more, as you said, this is a very fluid story and, and, and we're hearing information as it goes. Uh, recently, um, uh, the, uh, national association, uh, the, uh, um, national, uh, uh, uh <laughs> the, I'm trying to think of what Na- NASI stands for national association of, uh, what is it? Nazi? I'm, I've, I've drawn a blank here. Anyway, their reviews research showing people infected with COVID-19 may need, uh, just one dose of the vaccine. Uh, your thoughts on what we're finding out about this as we move forward? Well, Immunologically, it's not a surprising thing. Um, you'll remember when earlier on in the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion around we should just let people get infected and get herd immunity. But then we realized that uh, that causes too many people to become sick and too many people to die un- unnecessarily. And you know, Sweden tried that, but they you know, eventually had to admit that it wasn't a great strategy. The idea there was that being infected by the virus naturally should give you immunity that will prevent you from being infected again. Uh, And that is to some degree true, but people who are mildly infected don't mount um, a very robust immune response. And so that probably won't last very long. And so they probably would become infected again. Having said that, that, that degree of immunity that they, the people who have contracted the virus generate naturally um, should be easily boosted by the vaccine, any of the vaccines. And, and, and it's, I think a lot of people predicted, um, and it's turning out to be the case, that if you had a positive test result or were sick with COVID um, but not hospitalized, you very much benefit from one dose of the vaccine because mm. you you have some degree of immunity and one dose will boost that. And that's actually really good news, of course, because that probably uh, in certain jurisdictions includes a bunch of people who um, we may only need to vaccinate once. 
Do we yet vaccine for others? Do we yet know, doctor, whether those who have been vaccinated can still transmit the disease? No, I don't think this has been going on long enough to uh, to know that. That's actually a hard thing to track. Um, people are um, starting to monitor for evidence that people become um, productively infected after they've been vaccinated at some point later. Uh, it requires different testing than is currently used, so that's not commonly being done, and, and, and that doesn't guarantee that they, they, they produced enough virus to infect somebody else. Um, it'll take a while till we, till we know whether or not that's the case. Uh, obviously, we are seeing uh, variants go up, but we're also seeing vaccinations start to really increase. Uh, Canada, up to 11% of Canadians of the population, 11% of the Canadian population has been vaccinated uh, to date. Uh, as you mentioned, the as we mentioned, the, the holiday weekend is coming. Can we gather with a couple of friends? Is that wise? Well, I think, you know, Easter's pretty soon. We're still in the third wave. Most areas of Ontario, anyhow, are are still in some degree of you know the red zone or um, advisories around not getting together in groups of any size. So I think the smart thing is to stick to our bubbles, so to speak. Um, don't introduce into your circle people you haven't already been associating with. Um, you know, and hope that, uh, say, Canada Day will be the next time we can get together in bigger groups. <laughs> That's a good positive spin to it all. And and obviously reinforcing the need for the protocol to continue, unfortunately, even with the fatigue we're feeling. Yeah, because if we, if we sort of screw things up here in the third wave and it gets much worse, this is just going to drag out even longer. So now is the time to make one, you know, big last effort Stick to the rules and uh, get through this, and then we'll be able to enjoy our summer. Dr. Brian Lichty with us, Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine with McMaster's Immunology Research Center. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.